Well, good evening. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking in Acts chapter 15 and 16. If you want to go ahead and start turning there, here in a minute we'll pick up in Acts 15 and verse 36. But before we jump into that, I'd like to just give you a little bit of background of kind of what's been going on in Acts 14 and leading up to the verses we're going to be covering today in 15, just so you have the better context of kind of what we're getting into. So Acts 15 is often called the Jerusalem Council. And it's... it's um, it, it, was, it was a council, it was a council meeting to consider a great matter, a great matter that still affects us today. They were talking about what does it take for a Gentile to become a Christian. And the, 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 really the root of the matter was around circumcision. You see, there, there's these people that they called Judaizers. And they were teaching that unless you were circumcised as, uh, according to the law of Moses, that you cannot be saved. They were teaching that unless you became a Jewish, uh, what they call the proselyte, that in other words, convert to Judaism, that you could not become a Christian. So in order to become a Jewish proselyte, you would have to give up all your heathen practices. You would have to give up all your heathen friendships and associations. You would have to enter into a covenant, to, to, uh, a covenant with the Lord to observe the law of Moses. And the last part of it, you'd have to be circumcised. So this is a fairly, fairly long and drawn out process, and it's a fairly um, intense thing to be put under the, the, the old law, essentially. Now, don't get me wrong. The Judaizers weren't saying that salvation wasn't by grace because they weren't saying that. They just got the formula wrong. You see, the Judaizers were saying that it took converting to Judaism plus grace in order to get salvation, or it took works plus grace to get salvation. But as we know today, the real formula is grace plus zero. It takes nothing additional to grace for us to have salvation. And we can see this in Ephesians 2, verse 8, where it says, For by grace we are saved through faith. It is not our own doing. It is is a gift from God and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So this is the real formula of salvation. And this is the real formula that Paul and Barnabas were teaching on their first missionary journey. And they had just returned from their first missionary journey here in the beginning of chapter 15. And they were telling the the church in Antioch about the great things that happened on on their first missionary journey. About all the people's lives that had been changed and the people that had been saved and filled with the Spirit. But the Judaizers started saying, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute, these people weren't really saved because they weren't circumcised according to the old law. And so this troubled Paul and Barnabas greatly. And so they, they leave for Jerusalem to confront this matter with the elders and with the other apostles. And how many of you know that Satan was trying to get a foothold in the early Christian church? See, one of his greatest weapons is that of division. Pastor CJ actually talked about it this past Sunday, about the fence of offense, driving division between people. And Satan was trying to drive a division between the Jews and the Gentiles. He was trying to put up a barrier to Gentiles coming to know the Lord. So they get to Jerusalem, and the council convenes to discuss this point. And the Pharisees go first. These are Pharisees that have been converted to Christianity. And they told their version, which was very colored by their past, which was they were raised according to the law. They were raised according to a rigid set of things that you had to do in order to commune with God. And so they agreed with the Judaizers, saying that, yes, you must be circumcised to be saved. 
But then Peter shares his experience about his vision that he had and about going to Cornelius' house and about all the people in Cornelius' house becoming saved and becoming filled with the Spirit. It says just as it happened on the day of Pentecost, they were filled in the same way. So in a sense, what Peter is saying here, he's saying, don't blame me for these Gentiles becoming Christians. Don't blame me for these Gentiles becoming filled with the Holy Spirit without being circumcised. If you want someone to blame, you're going to have to blame God because he's the one that did it. And he goes on to say, besides, why would you want to saddle these Gentiles with the law? A law that, that, that we too, the, Gentile, uh, the, the Jews, could not live up to. You see, they were as in much need of grace as the Gentiles were. And so Paul and Barnabas are next, and they, they explain their experience on the missionary journey and the fruits of that journey and all the great things that God had been doing. And then James, the brother of Jesus, is the last one to speak. And he quotes Amos chapter, uh, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And he goes on to explain how, this, how these verses foretell that the, the Gentiles would be able to enter into the, to the messianic blessing without having to convert to Judaism. And so the council makes this decision, and James hands down the verdict of the council, which is essentially telling the Judaizers to lay off the Gentiles, to stop telling them that they need to be circumcised. And then, secondly, it addresses the Gentiles. And it says, there are a few rules that you need to obey, a few non-negotiables. And they were to stay away from anything that had to do with idols. It was to avoid fornication. And it was to not partake of meat that had been strangled. And so the apostles and the elders, they draft a letter, a letter that is sent with Paul, Barnabas, and Silas back to Antioch. And if you were here last time I spoke, I spoke about how in the second half of the book of Acts that Antioch becomes this real central hub of Jewish Christianity back in the first century church. And so Paul and Barnabas return home victorious from the Jerusalem council, bringing the wonderful news to the Gentiles that they did not have to be circumcised to be saved, that they did not have to adopt a Jewish lifestyle to be saved. If the decision had gone the other direction, it is very probable that the Jewish Christian, the Gentile Christianity, would have ended that day, or at least been severely inhibited. But now they're back. They've shared the letter with the people, and Paul is his, has a tug on his heart to go back out to the mission field, go back out and continue sharing the gospel. And that's where our story is going to pick up tonight. So tonight, I'd like to talk with you about how God can guide us, specifically how he can guide us through conflict, how he can guide us through discernment, how he can guide us through resistance, and how he can guide us through revelation. So the first one, God can guide us through conflict. Let's pick up in Acts chapter 15 and verse 36. Acts chapter 15 and verse 36. It says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city that we had proclaimed proclaim the word of the Lord to and see how they are. He wanted to go back to the same cities that they had gone to on their first missionary journey. This was a fairly natural proposal for them. You see, Paul and Barnabas worked well together. Every time that Barnabas, um, ever since Barnabas had re- retrieved Paul from Tarshish um, to help with the ministry in Antioch, Their friendship, their teamwork had become the thing of legends. Barnabas had had the the relational gifts, and Paul had a mastery of the law and a a keen sense of intellect. 
And together they were a dynamic duo. And they produced dynamic results. On their first missionary journey, they shared everything together. They had, the battle, they had battle wounds together. They had a common vision to see souls saved. They had become like brothers. And though like brothers, they occasionally would disagree on things. Neither of them probably likely foresaw what was about ready to happen. Let's look at verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought it, was th- but Paul thought it best not to to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with, uh, with him and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul took Silas and they departed, having been commended by the brothers uh, to the grace of the Lord. You see, on the first missionary journey, John Mark traveled with them the first, about the first quarter of the way through their journey. But for some reason, the Bible says that about a quarter of the way through that he returned to Antioch. The Bible doesn't really record exactly why he returns, but it gives us some clues that might give us some ideas of why he might have returned. It could have been the realities of, miss, of missionary life and the ongoing conflicts that it entailed. It could have been a lack of creature comforts. You see, John Mark came from a wealthy family. It could have been that, that there, there was a great sickness going through um, Pamphylia at the time, and he might have been afraid that he would have contracted it. It could have been the apparent ascendance of Paul over Barnabas, because Barnabas was John Mark's cousin. You see, as the beginning of the journey, it, it, it starts to say, Paul and Barnabas went and did this. Paul and Barnabas went and did this. But by the time they were at Pamphylia, it started to say Paul and his traveling companions. So there's an apparent uh, direction that Paul had kind of taken that leadership role. And Barnabas made more of an associate role on their, on their journey. It could have just been plain homesickness. But regardless of the reason, the, the, the word that Luke, the, the author of Acts, uses when he talks about him leaving and going back, I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word for you tonight, but it means to depart, to go away, or to run away. And so it's likely that Paul viewed this, that viewed this, uh, this leaving of John Mark as desertion. But Barnabas saw it differently. Perhaps they've been back in uh, um, Antioch about a year now, so perhaps he had seen some growth in John Mark, and he wanted to give him another chance. Verse 39 says, and there arose a sharp disagreement. And that word in the Greek literally means a state of intense emotional turmoil. You see, there were these two best friends, these two brothers are in a heated argument over whether to take John Mark with them. People, when they read this, often say that their heart goes with Barnabas, a man who's just looking out for his family, a man who's a firm believer in second chances. But people also often say that their mind goes with Paul. After all, what kind of example would it set if they took John Mark again, a person that had left him the first time? And hey, what, what would stop him from doing it again when they get to Pamphylia? It would have been a miserable predicament. And at that moment, there were probably no two unhappier brothers than all of Antioch. But when I read this scripture, it, it, in a kind of a strange way, it gives me some comfort. Because... 
these two, these two pillars of the first century's church, these two people that we look back to as, as these solid foundation of the first century church, they weren't perfect. In the same way that we today continue to have arguments and things within the church and disagreements over personnel, they had that back in the first century church. But regardless, we can see that Satan was again trying to get a foothold in the first century church. He had just been dealt a serious blow at the Jerusalem council, trying to separate the Jews from the Gentiles. So now he was going to try again, try to split up these two brothers. And now I find it interesting that in this account, that it doesn't say anywhere that they prayed together. It doesn't say anywhere that they prayed together and the Holy Spirit made it clear that they should take John Mark with them. It doesn't say anywhere that they prayed together and it was made clear that they were to go their own separate directions. So it was likely, it was, it was not God's will that they should argue. And it was likely not God's will that they should separate. But God was able to take this bad situation and he was able to use it. God led Barnabas to choose his cousin and go to Cyprus. This was a logical choice. This was the first stop on their, on their first missionary journey. They had both been there before. They were both familiar with the territory. They both knew what they were getting into. And, 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 at, and at Cyprus, they were both, or John Mark was faithful to the missionary journey. And God leads Paul to choose Silas. And they, and they go to Syria which is up towards the end of their first missionary journey. I didn't get a map ready for tonight, but their first missionary journey started in Antioch, and it basically makes a gigantic sea, and then they kind of backtrack back to Antioch. And so uh, uh, Barnabas and John Mark, they go, they go over to Cyprus, where their first stop was. But Paul and Silas, they start heading north up towards the back end of their first missionary journey. So you might say, what does this mean for us today? Well, while God didn't cause the disagreement or the separation, he used it to guide these two men to increased faithfulness and service. God, caused, uh, God used the situation to create a new missionary team, doubling the results of, the, of, of their work. Moreover, Silas brought something to Paul's ministry and, uh, of some important ingredients that were not there in Barnabas. You see, Silas was a Roman citizen, which would come in handy later in chapter 16. And we won't have time to get into it tonight, uh, but we did sing about it a little bit tonight. They, they end up getting thrown into prison. Um, and when they're finally released the next day, they, they are forced, the, the government is forced to release them very publicly. And they're forced to apologize to them very publicly because they're Roman citizens, because they were thrown into jail without a trial. And they were, they were begged by, these, by, these, uh, by, the, by the government not to be, turn them into Rome for violating their rights as Roman citizens. Silas was also a prophet. He spoke frequent, uh, fluent Greek. And he was Paul's stenographer, so he would write down some of the letters uh, for Paul. Uh, one important one that we know about is 1 Thessalonians. He wrote that one. And so though Barnabas was a great loss, Silas was a great gain for the missionary team. So today, we should realize that in our times of difficulty, in our times of failure, in our times of arguments, and in our times of separation, that through God, our difficulties don't have to spell the end of our service to the Lord. Through God, our failures don't negate our call. Through God, our separation doesn't, doesn't have to reduce our productivity. There's a fairly well-known American preacher. His name's Philip Brooks. 
But what most people don't know about Philip Brooks is that he started out as a school teacher, but he failed miserably at it. He, did, he didn't like his students, and his students definitely did not like him. And he's quoted as saying on the day that he was fired, I do not know what will become of me, and I don't care much. I wish I were 15 years old again. I believe I might become a stunning man, but somehow or another I do not see a way to become much of anything. So Phillips is fired, and he could have dealt with this in a number of ways. He could have chose to give up, but instead he lets God, he, he lets God guide him through his failure. And today he's remembered as a great uh, great man of God. In fact, if you ever go to Boston, you can swing by a Holy Trinity Church, and there's actually a statue uh, of him out front commemorating his ministry. He let spiritual greatness come out of his personal failure as he yielded to God's redirection in his life. So let me ask you this. Have you experienced personal failure in your life that you feel disqualifies you? If so, consider Paul and Barnabas' account. If so, consider Philip's account. You can have the same testimony as they if, they, if you just yield to God's redirection in your life in times of conflict. So tonight, let God lead you through your conflicts. Next, let's take a look at God's guidance through discernment. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but, the, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconia. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were, who were in those places, for they knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way, to the other cities, they delivered to them the ordinances and the decisions that were reached by the apostles and the elders who, uh, who were in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in number daily. So Paul gets to Lystra, and there he's impressed by a young man named Timothy. From other literature, we can see at this point he's probably a young teenager. His father was an unbelieving Gentile, and we can tell by the Greek tense that his father is probably dead at this point. But he was, his mother's name was Eunice, and his grandmother's name was Lois. And they, raised, they were Jewish, and they raised him in a godly way. And many believe that, that Timothy first became to know the Lord, first became a Christian uh, on Paul's first missionary journey when he was here in Lystra. But Paul is in, impressed with Timothy now that he's back there again. And he discerns that he's to take Timothy with him on this missionary journey. And so he takes him and he circumcises him. And Paul begins his missionary career. As a side note, some people believe that Paul's circumcision of Timothy here is against what the Jerusalem Council said. But it's not. The biggest reason is that Paul didn't circumcise Timothy for him to become a Christian. He was already a Christian. But instead, he circumcised him to remove a stumbling block. You see, Paul had a pattern in his ministry. Whenever he went into a town, he always went first to the synagogues, and then he went out to the marketplace and talked to the, to the Gentiles, ministering to them. So first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. If you read all of Acts, you'll see this pattern over and over and over again throughout Paul's ministry. 
So as, as he would do that, as he would go into the synagogues, he knew that he would be taking Timothy with him into the synagogues. And he knew it would muddy the water because Timothy's father was a well-known Gentile. And so it would muddy the water as he tried to share this message of salvation. He knew that people would try to discredit his message of salvation because merely because Timothy was not circumcised. They would spend all their time picking apart Timothy not being circumcised and negate the message of salvation altogether. So Timothy voluntarily removes the stumbling block for the sake of the gospel. So through this example, we can see that Paul used discernment in his daily life in the ministry. He used discernment in choosing Timothy to go with him. He used discernment in knowing that he was to circumcise Timothy. And the results were that the churches were strengthening, increased in numbers daily. One of the most outstanding achievements in modern ophthalmology today is the ability to be able to implant a lens into a human eye. After having this procedure done and the bandages removed, someone was once quoted as saying, how wonderful it is to have new eyes. Now our hearts have eyes. And, and before conversion, these eyes, these inner eyes, they're cloudy. They're like, they have cataracts on them. They're blocking our view. And we cannot see ourselves or others if, uh, through the clear light of truth. Nor can we behold God's true nature and the beauty of the world that he has given us to enjoy. We are spiritually blind. At conversion, our eyes begin to heal and these cataracts are removed. And, and we begin to understand the meaning of the cross, the true meaning of forgiveness. But we still cannot perceive all that the Lord has, has planned for us through the, through the power that he offers us. For that, we have to have a supernatural lens implant into into the eyes of our hearts. Paul calls this the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And one of the gifts that that we have access to today through that is, is discernment, the spirit of discernment. So you too can have this same discernment if you're willing to let God give you a supernatural eyelid transplant. So today, let me ask you this. Are you seeking God's discernment in your life as, as are you seeking God's discernment in your life as you do whatever God has called you to do, whether it's full-time ministry or just working out in your, in, your, in, your, in your job? Or are you walking through lives like you have spiritual cataracts on your eyes? Have you asked the Holy Spirit to help you to discern when that coworker is ready to hear the gospel? Have you asked the Holy Spirit to help you discern when there's that person that needs to be discipled? And to come alongside and disciple them. Because if Paul had not discerned that Timothy was in need of discipling, was in need uh, to go with him on the ministry journey, would Timothy have become a missionary? Would he have made the impact on the world that he did? Probably not. So why do we believe that it's any different today? So let God lead you through discernment. The third point is God... Uh, as God's guidance through resistance. Let's take a look at verses 6 and 7. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithia, but the Spirit of the Lord did not allow them. So Paul had, had finished his, his ministry in Galatia, and he decides to, uh, he c- comes from the east uh, and towards Galatia. He finishes ministry there, and he decides to go south to minister into Asia. 
not the continent of Asia, but the province of Asia, uh, where the city of Ephesus is located. But for some reason, God stops him. So from there, he decides to try to go north to Bithya, but God stops him. And so the overall effect is that he's, he, there's, there's a funneling effect that directs him eastward, or pardon me, westward towards Europe. The Bible doesn't say specifically what stopped them. It could have been the, the bestowing and renewing of a subjective sense of peace as they were traveling. It could have been difficult circumstances. It could have been transportation problems. Some have even suggested that it could have been illness because we can tell by the context that, that Luke, the author of, uh, of Acts, joins them at this point, and he's a doctor. But regardless, uh, the, but regardless their, missionary wor- their missionary work was not smooth sailing. And it would have been a simple, but it was Paul's simple faith in God that, that, God, that God was in control that kept him going. It was, God's, it was Paul's simple faith in God that God was in control that kept him going. And it's the same faith that, would later, uh, that he would later pen in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, where it says, We are afflicted every day, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul refused to indulge himself in the what-if game. He didn't say, what if we had just never taken John Mark the first time? What if he hadn't asked to come again? He didn't say, what if I was smarter? What if I had just stayed home? It would have been easy for him to pity himself, but instead he kept trusting in the Lord. And they continued to press on day by day. And finally they arrived in Troas. Paul trusted God to lead him through resistance. He would head in one direction, and the Spirit, if the Spirit would keep him from going that direction, he would start going in a different direction. And the Spirit, he would wait for the Holy Spirit to either confirm or deny that that was the right direction. And in the same way, it would have been a uh, and in the same way that's a whole lot easier to steer a car when it's moving, Paul knew the truth that it's a whole, or a whole lot easier for God to guide us when we're not sitting still. Have you ever been up in a skyscraper when there's been a big gust of wind and you can actually feel it moving? There's really no danger, but the engineers knew it would happen. But that sway can be uncomfortable for the people inside. So the engineers and the architects, when they designed Citicorp Center in New York City, they decided to do something about it. At the top of the, the, the 59-story building, they installed what has become known as a tune mass dampener. And this machine is essentially a 410-town block of concrete, and it's suspended by, by big coils hanging from the wall, big springs hanging from the wall, and it floats on a, f- a fine film of oil. And as the building sways, the block's inertia helps to dampen the effects and minimize the effects to the people in the building. So when the winds of life blow around you, are you connected to a stabilizing force? Are you connected to the only thing that can calm your heart, can calm your fears? Are you connected to God? Are you trusting in Him through faith? Sometimes we face trials. And sometimes... It's like every direction we try to go, we get told no. But if we keep our focus on the Lord, if we keep connected to the Lord, if we keep our faith in the Lord strong, we will be able 
be able to, to say the same thing that Paul says, that we are, we are struck down but not destroyed. So let God lead you through resistance. Fourth point for tonight, God can lead you through revelation. So when they get to Troas, Paul has a vision. Let's take a look at it in verses 8 through 10. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, he immediately, immediately we, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul has a vision of a Macedonian man speaking for his lost race. We don't really know if the vision was really just the one sentence or if it was longer than that. But the meaning is clear in the one sentence that we see, that Europe was calling for help. And the people of Europe were in need of the saving grace of the gospel of the Lord. Verse 10 says, concluding that God had called them to, uh, called them to preach the gospel there. That word concluding in the Greek is an interesting word. It, it literally means to, to, to bring together, to, pu- to put together, or to knit together. It is at this point that Paul and his traveling companions put together God's plan. It is at this point that they look back and they can see the intricacies of what God had been knitting into their life as he was funneling them westward towards Europe. They had a revelation that God had called them to minister to Europe. And this was a great turning point in history. And really, we today even should thank God for it. For as a result of this, Europe hears about, about Christianity for the first time. They really start the initial the movement of Christianity in Europe that eventually spreads to the United States. So Paul and his companions decide to accept this revelation, to, ex- to accept this calling, and they press on towards Macedonia. So what can we learn from this? God's timing is not our timing. I mean, why didn't God, wh- 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 why did God direct them westward when they expected to go north? We don't really know. Why didn't God give them the vision up front instead of at the end of their journey? We don't really know. But we do know this. God directs them through every situation. They were simply trusting in the, in the Lord. They were pressing on through the trials. And at the, and at the end of it, they had a revelation. And they were able to see all that God had planned. And all that God was planning on doing. Sometimes we just have to press on through the hard times, not knowing why we're going through what we're going through. But when we get to the other side, often we're able to look back and see what God has been knitting together through that trial. You have to learn to trust God when when all you have is faith. And when you get to the other side and look back, you'll be able to see God's fingerprints leading and guiding you and directing you to where he he needs and wants you to be. So let God lead you through revelation as well. So as uh, Pastor King comes back tonight and begins to play, as I conclude, I want to ask you a few questions to, to consider, and then we're going to open the altars and uh, let you guys respond or spend a little time in prayer. So are you currently going through conflict? Then I would encourage you to seek God and how he would, have, how he would lead you through that conflict
and have it end in the best results? Have you messed up in the past? Seek God for His direction, how He wants to direct you. He can still lead you to where He wants you to be today. And the best part of it is, and the best part about God's direction is that no matter how many times you mess up, no matter how many times you go in the wrong direction, He can lead you back to the same, back to the correct course. He's like the GPS on your phone. Every time, if your phone may say, hey, go another five miles and before your next turn, and you can say, ah, I'm going to go ahead and turn here. And it may be a wrong turn, but how many of you know that your phone will say, recalculating, and it will tell you directions to get back to the right path. And no matter how many times you do that over and over again, it'll keep doing that. And God's the same way. No matter how many times you make a wrong turn, He can lead you back to the right path. if that is you tonight, ask Him to recalculate your path tonight. Ask Him to recalculate your path back to where He had planned you to be. Are you facing great trials where it seems like every direction you try to turn, you're told no? If so, ask God to show you the way that He wants you to go. Ask Him to give you the faith to walk through the path that He tells you to go, regardless of how dark it may look. And if you've been going through a trial for a long time, ask Him to give you a revelation of where He's leading you. Ask Him to show you what He's knitting together in the tapestry of your life of where He's leading you tonight. So tonight, if this message is spoken to you, I encourage you to come up to the altars and to seek Him for guidance in your life. And if not, to spend a few moments in prayer and to seek in God's direction in your life as well. And then Pastor CJ, I'll come back to close us out here in a few minutes.
thank you, Lord, for your spirit moving in this place tonight. Lord, for the worship, for the word, God, in the altar time. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. Lord, for those who are willing and hungry and anticipating and watchful. God, you're ready to, to do surgery on our hearts, God. And I thank you for those that are coming in this place with expectation of leaving change. In Jesus' name. Wow, what a great message. Amen. You know, there's a couple people I've been saying something to you lately. So I'm just ready to kick the devil, devil in the teeth, you know? Um, you know, I made in, in that message, I made a comment about that Facebook post, and someone said, you can't blame the devil for everything. And, uh, yeah, I get, I get that partially, but I still know he's behind anything. And I don't know. I just, when it says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood and principalities, I mean, God took away my uh, right to go box people for doing things wrong. But he, he's telling me, you know, devil's fair game. You can kick him in the teeth all day long, and it's part of the job. So um, I'm ready for that. So I'm just going to ask you that on these Wednesday nights, whether I'm preaching or the, one of the other guys are preaching, Sundays, will you, will you pray before then? L- listen, I know if I asked you to pray every day before the next service, that might be asking a little much, some in their walk, some that's a given. But I'm just going to ask you, will you pray for those services? I'll tell you that many times when God really moves in the services, I know people have told me that they're praying before that service. So pray and ask God. Come in expecting. You know, I, that song, a prison, uh, if you're a prison in your mind, how many how many has been there? I mean, how, how much of a prison is it when the enemy's kicking, trying to kick you around and, and it just seems like this, this life is rough? We don't have much time, I don't believe. I know people can say preachers have been saying that for, for a long time, but I really don't believe I have much time. And there are a whole lot of people that are at risk of dying and going to hell, and they need us. They need us. I was talking to evangelist Jared Horton today on the phone for a while about the outreach, and, and he was excited and talking about it. I said, you know, but Brother, Brian, uh, Brother uh, Jer- Jared, Brother Brian Jarrett. No, Brother Jared Horton. So, Brother Jared, I said, um, I don't want to sound like a pessimist and negative, but we can go win the lost all day long. But if we don't have people who are willing to disciple them, they're not going to be around long anyway because I've seen it happen too often. You know, I'm not discounting the power of God to change people's lives, but listen, guess what happens by the Bible? What's the plan? They get saved. They get plugged into a body. What happens in discipleship? You take the discipleship out of that plan, and the plan fails. Not because of God, like about him, because his people let him down. All right? So I'm, I'm asking you, pray for the services, because in the services, God is growing you, I'm praying. And if he's growing you, he's preparing you to disciple someone else. And so we need to keep that plan in action. That we're praying and we're believing that we're going to grow, we're going to come away with something. And, you know... Um, I know that pastors of all size churches and all si- all amounts of capabilities and those that are famous and those that are not, they all will say the same thing as one of the biggest challenges uh, to the church is the discipleship. They can preach their hearts out, but it still comes down to what are you going to do with it when you leave those doors. So 
Let's be praying and be very attentive. I feel like God's been doing some things in our services. There's momentum that he's building. And so um, do your part and pray, come expecting, and invite people. Invite people. Invite them. But, you know, you thought I was going to say invite them to church, right? Invite them into your lives. Invite your neighbor into your life, your coworker. Invite them into your life and let them see the changes Jesus is making in you. And we don't have to worry about inviting them to church because they're going to come with you because they're your friend and you're the solid part of their life because you're the spiritual influence over their life. So invite them into your life. Amen? All right. Thank you, and God bless you. Hang out as long as you want to fellowship. If you have to leave, we'll see you Sunday, Sunday bright and early.